On a fall night in the not-too-distant future, a headsman stands next to two guillotines erected in a square, surrounded by neoclassical buildings lit from below. Red guards shuffle prisoners toward the devices, a pile of disembodied heads to one side, a pile of beheaded corpses to another. A crowd of spectators is growing. Occasionally, someone takes a selfie with one of the heads to the annoyance of the headsman. Our headsman turns toward a robotic camera hovering above the killing floor. Before Dr. Guillotine's invention, if the executioner were sloppy or a blade dull, decapitation would be prolonged and painful. According to Wikipedia, Margaret Pohl, the eighth Countess of Salisbury, required 10 strokes of the blade before her decapitation took. The guillotine was supposed to be more humane, but many have speculated that the brain remains active in certain cases for several minutes after being separated from its torso. According to Wikipedia, there is no scientific consensus on this matter. This is what the folks came out to see. Two heads fall onto the ground and are quickly tossed into the larger pile of heads. The last thoughts of the two heads are recorded by a digital recorder augmented with an EMF device. I, ha I have not bent the law, but I have been consistent in its bending. They look like primetime soldiers. Where are the women? I don't want them coming. Without your word, you're not a man. The, the greatest gift God gave to, to mankind was, was, was to forget. We build a school and they blow up the school. This is a big fucking deal. I am a traditionalist. When you sneeze on an airplane, it, it, it goes everywhere. That, that's me. Coming through the cracks to do, do, do things that people will not even believe are possible. If we do everything right, there's a 30% chance we got it wrong. Bitch, be cool. Clean and articulate. We're talking about sand and death. I can't go into a 7-Eleven or a, a Dunkin' Donuts. The world is not going so well. And, and, and that's that's when FDR got on television after the stock market to get punished. crash in 1929. Our country is full. No one should go to jail. They should go to mandatory... When we stop growing, that, that, that's the end. Choose truth over facts. Look, up in the sky, it's a Everyone, welcome to Locust Radio, uh, a podcast about art, literature, politics, and the radical weird. Uh, my name's Alex. I'm Tish. I'm Adam. Uh, this is our monthly podcast from the Locust Arts and Letters Collective. We also publish the Locust Review. You can find out more at locustreview.com, or if you're already hooked, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash locustreview and even perhaps consider following us on our social medias, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Twitter is of course at Locust Review, Instagram is Locust Review, and we are Locust Review on Facebook as well. So we've got a few announcements before we launch into things this week. Locust Review just finished, in, uh, finished presenting a panel for historical materialism online, a panel on critical realism as socialist strategy, featuring myself, 
Alex and our fellow editors, Holly Lewis and Anupam Roy. Um, we'll put a YouTube link in the show notes. You can also find it on the Locust Review website. And we would like to formally announce that submissions are now open for the Locust Review issue four. So if you have uh, radical, weird art, poetry, fiction, anything like that, please send it to locust.review at gmail.com. L-O-C-U-S-T dot R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. We're also announcing that starting in 2021, Locust will be launching a yearly theoretical journal uh, called Imago. This is a project, uh, another expansion to the Locust project that we're really excited about. Um, it's a journal that seeks to relate to and analyze the world through our weird Marxist lens and uh, better theorize what we mean by critical realism, the radical weird. Already, uh, we've got material going into this first issue that reports on the state of the movements in, in Lebanon, in the Pacific Northwest of, uh, of, uh, of the U.S., uh, pieces on a forgotten movement to claim sci-fi for communism back in the 1930s, uh, radical take on the work of Chuck Tingle, uh, both of which actually we're going to be talking about later in the second part of the show, which you can hear if you're a subscriber. Uh, so if you have a submission for Imago, uh, please hit us up at the same email, uh, locust.review at gmail.com. That's L-O-C-U-S-T dot R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And uh, keep in mind the submissions for both are due before us December 15th. So send us your stuff. All right. So for this episode, uh, predictably, unfortunately for all of us, we're going to be discussing uh, the state of the elections, the presidential elections here in uh, the U.S., uh, just sort of the election and its fallout, the prospect of Biden pr uh, presidency, but oh, God, it's such a fucking mess. I I. I oh, hate everything now, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. I said it's all better now, guys. Ugh. Right, yeah, it's all better. It's not like we have a complete doddering neoliberal uh, who's going to be president and it's going to do absolutely nothing to stop Trump's armed minions from, from wrecking our lives for the next four years. Jesus nothing will change. Come on, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we could go to brunch now. Yeah, brunch. Brunch, yeah. Mm. Remember brunch? I fucking hate brunch. I've all, I've <laughs> brunch. It, okay. It's stupid. Just have two meals. Why would you give yourself one meal when you can just give yourself two? Just, just show some goddamn patience. Jesus well, you Christ. can't drink a mimosa over eggs like at breakfast at like oh. seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, watch me. That's how I start every <laughs> fucking day. I, I believe that. I, 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 do a sh I do a shot of whiskey and cod liver oil every morning when I wake up at 6.30. Jesus, what's wrong with you? Why? This is why you love me. This is why I'm your... <laughs> Alex, so you do a shot of whiskey and cod liver oil, and then yeah. you sit down and have mimosas? Yes. <laughs> yes. I most certainly fucking do. He's like, I got to drink yeah. it out of the way, fortify myself. <laughs> but, but, what, what, do, myself. Just, just to be clear, just to be clear, I, I, do, I, I don't use uh, champagne in mimosas. It's a proprietary mixture that I use. You want to know what to use instead of champagne? Carbonated <laughs> sure. battery acid. Carbonated <laughs> battery acid. 
Oh, oh my god, Alex. I have the American Breakfast of Champions in front of me right now. <laughs> there's no bacon though. I didn't hear bacon. Of course there's bacon. What 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 okay. what do you take oh. me for? I mean I never got to actually drink horse the bacon. Acid. I usually just lick the end of batteries. Well, yeah. That's the good and time. I'm the crazy one. Oh, oh, I what? see how it is. I'm the crazy one. Now. You never licked a nine volt? Alex. <laughs> no, yeah. N not since high school. Actually, not since senior year of college. But uh... yeah. yeah. Go get some batteries. Yeah. Go behind the uh, gym at the high school. Lick some batteries. See what happens. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, All right. It's so what the yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. The election. All right. All right. So, all right. What um, what the fuck do we think of this? I mean, what is going to change over these next four years? Anything? Is normality on our on our horizon? No, not really. I mean, it, this is like, I, I obviously this was the outcome that we wanted and had to have, but like, I really don't like all of the. All of that, everything's better now. Yeah, yeah. I was so like, I can't even explain to you how many times I saw a meme that said, put your shoes on, ladies. There's glass all around. What the fuck does that even mean? Glass like the glass ceiling was broken. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. That's the exact reaction that I had. Paris breaking this glass ceiling will, of course, liberate the women she sent to jail when their kids skipped school. You know, yes. like, uh, and I mean, this gets to the, the, I mean, like, to be, you know, not to be, like, super serious, but, like, we get to the, the key, probably been fighting the far right and Trump and so on, and now we have Biden in office and Harris in office, so not only do we have to oppose the far right um, and its uh, reactionary, you know, set of mythologies and politics, but now we have to fight the capitalist realism lack of meaning um, while we're fighting uh, the fascists. I mean, and I think this is borne out, you know, in the elections, you know, Trump won Florida, but Florida voters passed a $15 minimum wage. Biden won California, but California voters decided to fuck over gig workers at Uber and mm -hmm. Lyft. Mm -hmm. The inroads Trump mm -hmm. made also, not just amongst white working class people, but also some black and Latino uh, voters, um, the largest non-white vote for Republicans since 1960s. And of course, this is about the ideological and practical inability of the Democratic Party to organize or articulate the specific needs of the Black community beyond symbolism, as well as the hostility of the Democratic Party to either the practical implication or articulation of any universal class interests and thus giving ground to the fascists. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, the, the way that people are talking about Trump's proposed uh, pullout of troops from Iraq and Afghanistan right now, really, I does, uh, I, I do think gives us kind of a kind of a preview of what we can expect actually over the next four years. Like, it, it's not exactly that Trump is playing to the left or anything. It's that he's playing he's playing a populist card, like withdrawing Trump uh, withdrawing troops from Iraq and Afghanistan like this is an objectively a good thing and now we're mm -hmm. we're in the position where Biden uh, the liberals are going to be denouncing it as too soon which of course is going to read to a whole swath of people across the spectrum is like oh okay so working class people should just keep dying 
in two conflicts that should have never should have never been started in the first place and we've been fucking two decades almost to this war on terror um and now we're basically going to be tacitly asked to to continue through it because the normal that we need to return to it was that was good enough for us never mind the fact that it birthed people like trump it birthed people like first the tea party then the fucking maga chuds and then now on to QAnon. like it just keeps radicalizing and radicalizing and radicalizing but like the proud boys are are becoming more and more radical right now you know that there's this this schism within them the proud boys versus what proud goys i guess they're calling themselves you know like by and their leader is now someone who says like i'm sick of the proud boys pretending not to be nazis essentially you know saying like we, we need to do away with his words here the token negroes in the the uh in the the organization so it's like this just gets pushed more and more the, 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 that whole set just gets more and more radicalized and there's absolutely nothing being done to ameliorate or undermine it from being done by biden i mean you look at his cabinet picks and jesus christ this is just a fucking murderer's row of of neoliberalism and wall street and and uh you know old uh unreformed american uh anti-communism and militarism. and they're going hard after the left right now we have a lot a lot on our plate over the next few years i suppose but it's going to be a lot of i think uh really bad liberal assessments that fail to recognize that the population is sort of disfigured between these two capitalist parties neither one yeah. of which offers anything of substance um in terms to its working class constituencies and of course trump is racist his core support is fascist it's growing i think there is a process of americanization of that fascism where like the more european style fascists are uh somewhat marginalized from the from the trump caravans and the core of the proud boys and the bugalos and so on but you, it's difficult to describe a simplistic view that trump's vote is racist and Biden's support is anti-racist as Biden right, is, you know, right. the key author of the 1994 crime bill has this incredibly right. long racist track record and is supported by liberal middle-class people who benefit the most from gentrification and support politicians at the local level that have increased police power and funding for decades. Yes. And so yeah, it exactly. raises, and it, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, obviously the fascists are the worst enemy, but they're enabled, like you were saying, Alec, every step of the way by these good liberal capitalist realists who stop rent control, who fuck over black Uber drivers mm -hmm. and redneck mm -hmm. grocery store workers alike, mm -hmm. or in cultural mm -hmm. terms, create that absence of meaning that is imposed on everyday life for working class people. I mean, we have the raw human material to like do something different, but being trapped right now by this lack of liberal imagination is leaving a huge opening to, to the fact, and we saw, we're recording the day after uh, the protests, um, um, such as they were in Washington, D.C., where I don't know the exact number, but tens of thousands of Trump supporters yeah, uh, were marching yeah. to demand yeah. the lack, to, to demand not recognizing the legal outcome of the 2020 elections. Tish, what do you think? I am just like, I'm just, I just keep like watching the videos of the protests and then watching things like the, the people like wailing and praying outside of the vote counts. And then, uh, so I have a, a friend who runs some, uh, some Facebook groups. He runs mainly some baby Yoda Facebook groups and he started one called recount 2020. 
uh, as a way of like drawing boomers into troll them, like a Trump Trump fans into troll them. And it's like it's kind of a nightmare. It, it is. <laughs> it's it's really sort of terrifying. Like watching all of these people, like you know, posting posting these like sometimes really terrifying memes and saying like you know, no, we need to. These are obviously illegal votes, you know, and just like talking this nonsense over and over again and it, it, it occurs to me that like sometimes it feels a little bit like they're trying to convince themselves i don't yeah. know it's just yeah. i'm just like i'm really i don't have high hopes for the no. way this is going to turn out because like what joe biden's our hope what why yeah, yeah. no that's we, not going to do shit for us are we yeah. allowed to talk about your friend's bait group yet I mean, I don't think anyone that is going to be like uh, fooled by it is listening to our podcast. So I think we can probably talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, recount yes. twenty twenty. Uh, and and anyone on the right who hasn't uh, who hasn't been listening up until now, there's a great new Facebook group you should check out <laughs> called Recount Twenty Twenty. Every time someone uh, says that, I hear an eagle stop sound. The steal. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like the fucking Ta-ha! horses in Young. <laughs> It's 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 like the fucking horses in Young Frankenstein with Frau Blucher. <laughs> yeah. Recount twenty twenty. <laughs> oh my god, that eagle. <laughs> well, I'll ask so Tish and Alex, what do you all think about the quote coup? I feel like this coup is giving me all of the anxiety of a coup, but none of the catharsis. You know? <laughs> like like the, I, I feel like but Trump is doing exactly, yeah, yeah. It's a coup tease. Yeah, the, the, I feel like tr- Trump is doing exactly what we thought he was going to, but it, but it feels mm-hmm. like less of the drama. You know, like we knew he was going to be undermining democracy, and I think the left, the sections of the left that were preparing for uh, Trump to undermine democracy, whether we called it a coup or not, like it, it was correct for us to do that. I was part of some groups here in LA that were organizing around that, and I think at the very least, it helped us build and solidify some networks, particularly among like the sort of new Jewish left here in um, here in, in LA and like the Jews against fascism contingent, the works, the, the coalitions that DSA was able to build up, the DSA chapter out here. Um, it helped us sort of solidify some links, but I do think that there is sort of, even though Trump's doing exactly what we thought he was going to, there's a disorientation right now. Like folks aren't sure how to really take this on. And I think part of that is because, you know, Trump's legal maneuvers, I don't think have any any real um, hope of, of doing much. Uh, but that's really not the problem at this point. The problem is that like there's 70 some odd million people out there who are going to be looking at Trump as their president in exile, you know, yeah. as the one true president. And that that just really allows for a lot of sort of the the psychological connection that author- authoritarian leaders need, that's going to be strengthened right now because they feel embattled and they feel like, like, like even more like Trump is being persecuted. They, by extension, are being persecuted. That's the real challenge over the next four years. And I think we're kind of still, the left is still trying to figure out how to actually counter this, uh, partly because so much of what we've been doing has been dedicated to getting Trump out or large sections mm-hmm. of the left. Now that Biden and his cabinet and most of the centrist Democrats are going hard against the left right now, against AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Cory Bush and all of that, like that we're, it's, it's disorienting. I'd like to believe we can get back on our feet, but I'm not, 
I think first we need to acknowledge that we've <laughs> that this victory wasn't as much of a slam dunk as uh, as a lot of people thought it was going to be. You know? No, definitely. There's like the I don't know. I I have a couple friends who like started celebrating really hardcore after after Biden was finally initially uh, officially announced. Yeah, and I was like, we we were just having a conversation about how this didn't like this didn't mean like celebrate. I mean, celebrate for a minute, sure, whatever. But this is like this is like a step on the road to where we're actually like this isn't this isn't where we stop and like pat ourselves on the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's yeah. Super frustrating. It's it is super fucking frustrating, and like so. I guess that to me the question is like, what are the prospects for anti-fascism? And building, keeping, you know, we, we have more of a left than we had four or five years ago in the U.S. We need to keep building that. Uh, we need to build an anti-fascist movement in this country. What are the prospects for, for that? And also, I think, for, for radical art, because I think the parameters are going to be kind of shifting a little bit right now, particularly because one of the, one of the sort of driving forces of American culture is going to be this battle between mm-hmm. Trumpism and this this liberal normieism let's just go back to normal kind of thing so that, like yeah i mean i think that part of this i mean i agree anti-fascism is incredibly important and i think for that to work we have to not listen to the liberals who will be attacking the socialist left more than they're attacking the right in fact mm-hmm. the possibility of a war on extremism coming from biden's you know national unity government is is really strong um but I think part of it is how wrong the liberals have been about the dynamics overall. Um, I joke that I have a, a dream that it's January 21st and there's a thousand ICE agents around the White House and Trump's inside <laughs> tweeting and Biden approaches appealing to the patriotic duty of the ICE agents and their response is uh, smirking uh, sort of statue poses. Um, CNN is like, you know, super excited about exploiting the sensation about it, but keeps telling you that a coup is impossible. Half the liberals are screaming and the other half are arguing that law and democratic tradition is going to prevail. And then Mm -hmm. I imagine that somewhere across the country in a bar somewhere and a social democrat, a Marxist and an anarcho-syndicalist are sitting there at the bar having a drink. They've all got their COVID-19 vaccinations. So it's totally cool. And they all agree a coup is not possible because the capitalist class has made it clear they want Trump gone. Um, And I think obviously they're right um, at one level. Um, But I think it's important not to have, uh, not to be too crude in our base superstructure analysis right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, it's like Raymond Williams uh, talked about, Marx only used that phrase like twice. I think the better phrase is being determines consciousness. And what is it in the being of our capitalist class that show they have any political will to do anything other than get in our way, get in the left's way and invade other countries over the past 20 years. So I think Trump's on his way out, but I think the logic of the situation is going to continually reinforce the growth of the far right. Yeah. Um, And what the, the Biden administration will lead is an attack on maybe an abstract radicalism, but with the focus on our side more than the other side. And that'll let this 72, well, I don't know if everybody who voted for Trump thinks he's, you know, president exiled, but at least half of them probably do. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's a movement. Tens of thousands of people in Washington, DC saying 
fuck democratic norms as limited and as screwed up as they've been understood in the United States is a, is a really big development. And the yeah. last thing I wanted to bring up about is the, the, the joke about the protest made by the, uh, the spokesperson for Media Matters. He's like, it was like a giant internet, uh, internet comment troll section come to life. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. You know, it's one of those funny liberal jokes until you stop to think about what that would actually be like, right? Yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's a certain degree that um, I keep thinking over the past few weeks, uh, the, the movie that keeps popping into my head is Starship Troopers. Yeah. In, mm-hmm. in so many ways, you know, like a fucking brilliant movie, I think, that unjustly flopped. Um, but it was... You know, th- this notion, this whole notion that democracy is being undermined by voting mm-hmm. is just absolutely, I mean, that is basically what's being argued right now. You know, Trump tweeting, stop the votes, or saying what when he tried to claim victory, uh, you know, early in the morning on election night, you know, he's saying the voting must stop. Well, the voting had stopped. What he actually meant, like, you know, was, was the stop the count. Um and of course, there's all sorts of mental rationalizations that Trump and his supporters have about these these votes, why they shouldn't count. But if you think about like what what a fucking what a what a fucking state American democracy such as it is has to get into where tens of millions of people can believe that democracy is undermined by democracy. It's just it, it speaks just how feeble and tottering the center is, you know? And, and so I, well, back to Starship Troopers, what I really came here to talk about um, <laughs> is, you know, like th- this whole notion that somehow th- there are correct votes and there are incorrect votes, you know, mm-hmm. the, the only people that hold up democracy are the people who vote correctly, i.e. embrace the same amount of exclusivity and violence and racism that Trump does you know, it's, it, again, with Starship Troopers, the the whole notion that the only people who can vote are the veterans, civilians can't, uh, because that's the only way dem- democracy somehow needs to be earned through violence. Uh, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, a bug, you know, the bugs, the aliens, whatever you want to call them, COVID, is just ripping people to shreds. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's just, it, it it's a sad fucking day. It's as sad as it is exciting um, when you can point to a Paul Verhoeven movie and say, yes, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what's happening right now. I mean, I time guess time. the world has gotten, I, I guess the world has gotten sick of RoboCop references. We're ready for Starship Troopers references now. <laughs> I'd like to know more. Sorry. I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> that gets us on the question, like, what is what is going to be required of radical art over the next four years? Like, I think we know what the left needs to do and who knows if we will, but the, the connected question of like, there's this sort of room to return to where satire was kind of in 2016, like this kind of say what you will about its contradictions, but like, uh, you know, like the sort of return to like an adult swim, too many cooks kind of like hyper absurdism that it's that was kind of the main way that satire operated up until 2016 when trump won and then all of a sudden the the alt-right sort of swoops in and takes over irony for themselves 
um there does feel like there's kind of this this like return like if you think about some of the some of the online reactions to of course the now legendary four seasons total landscaping debacle so much of that was utterly hilarious a lot of it was like i do want to talk about how a much a, a lot of the the liberal snickering at it mm -hmm. like reveals <laughs> something about the the condescension of liberalism right now but i also want to talk about how legitimately funny it was um especially some of like the online lampooning of it you know what it reminded me of just just really quickly like uh in better call saul when he goes and like films the commercials <laughs> it sort of had that kind of like ridiculous vibe where it's just like fine just fucking throw it together man we'll just do it it doesn't matter <laughs> And I, I, I was like, well, you know, there should be more uh, high, high ranking political um, shit going on in parking lots. Yeah. It yeah. happened no, more I often. Mean, we're, we're, we're talking about like making a, doing a press conference for uh, uh, our, our Imago journal, like shooting it in front of the shittiest strip malls we live near. I mean, I, and I think that, I mean, some of this stuff is obviously, you know, objectively funny, but the look on the faces of the reporters there, as if they oh were so God, horrified yeah. oh, to basically be in a place that looks like where most of us actually live. Yeah, um, right. uh, says a lot. It says a lot about how the mainstream liberals are unprepared to beat Trump culturally too. I yeah. mean, like uh, one of the things that uh, we all, I think several of us read before today was China Mayville's 2018 article from Salvage on quote unquote being presidential, which gets at some of this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that in 2016, one of the things that appealed to voters uh, beyond the liberal middle-class core of the Democratic Party voter base and its bourgeois establishment <coughs> was the negation of staid bourgeois normalcy, right? On the left, uh, the what I called the weak socialism of Bernie Sanders at the time, and on the right, what I called the weak fascism of, of Trump. Mm -hmm. I remember we wrote it back when Alex and I were editors at Red Wedge, um, I think in an editorial in response to Trump's inauguration, mm -hmm. um, you know, that the cultural avant-garde is sort of settled with negotiating identity with a, what we call an unseen and largely undiscussed bourgeois oversoul that produced a weak avant-garde that was afraid of capitalist power, mm -hmm. um, even as it ignored its existence and relied on it materially. So I think we have a liberal cultural resist resistance trademarked and hashtagged that is still very afraid of the very kind of upsetting things that are absolutely necessary. Uh, that working class sense of fuck you. Uh, mm -hmm. Why working class Parisians named their streets yank penis and the street paved with chitterling sausages before housemen renamed them and bulldozed them to make space for boulevards and bourgeois people. You know, working class traditions of Billingsgate and the carnival, reversal of fortune, the willingness to fight that the liberals simply do not have. Yeah. The, the yeah. absence of articulating yeah. these things culturally allowed the fash to posture as oppositional to capitalist realism falsely, because at the end of the day, what they represent is the personification of the death cult. They represent yeah. killing yeah. hundreds of thousands of people. They represent even more brutal version of what we already have. On the other hand, uh, <laughs> on the other hand, the virtual furries in front of the <laughs> meticulously recreated <laughs> uh, landscaping business 
uh, four seasons total landscape was utterly like that's the other thing like I, I do think that there was a there's a chance and a lot of this is muddled and contradictory but mm-hmm. there is a chance to see like a difference between the way most people most working class people particularly young working class people are relating to the absurdity of this moment versus the way that the liberals are are uh, mm-hmm. are are relating to it so so you have yeah the liberal reporters who are rolling their eyes the whole time like snickering at at trump but you also have you know <laughs> young people who are like embracing the weirdness mm-hmm. are have already had to like carve an identity for themselves by embracing their weirdness um mm-hmm. are sort of identifying with that in just sort of not even the the relating to the total landscaping part as just um as just another manifestation of this absurd existence that they already have to already have yeah. to deal with so you get that you know cyber furries running around like <laughs> jumping yeah. around with the the trump 2020 posters still on the garage door it's, i could watch it's, that all day it, it, it's a different kind of oh god absolutely I, I think i did i couldn't pull myself away <laughs> from it for like hours that's what well, that's what I did with my Wednesday. Like, <laughs> well, the target of that video isn't just like Trump as an aberration. It's like the the target of that video is the absurdity of all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which is like yeah. fundamentally different than YouTube videos of rich assholes who are out of touch singing Imagine or doing fuck all in their palatial mansions, you know, or whatever that's being offered by the, the mainstream liberal opposition. It's, it's another thing that makes me, I think we also saw this, that same kind of like split in the way that people were relating to like two other videos in the, that sort of moment between election day and when the media called it for Biden, you know, those like three or four days when you had the, the people showing up, Tish, you mentioned this earlier, like that small mm-hmm. little prayer group in front of mm-hmm. uh, the Clark County election offices. And also, I think you saw it in the way that a lot of people were sort of making fun of those. Um, this is also another video that went went, went viral of those those uh, Trump supporters with their flags dancing to Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> you know, I mean, fuck like, you, I won't do what you tell me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, all right, yeah, both of these are absolutely absurd, but it's like the the, the absurdness of the prayer group in front. Again, it, it's not like this this liberal condescension, oh my God, I can't believe these people live in this country. It's like saying, no, these mm-hmm. people live in this country. Like this is just as much of a completely like backward ass country as it always fucking has been. Um, and when you're mocking the people that are dancing to Rage Against the Machine, like, all right, yes, this is obviously a, a communist act. Like this is, if you read the lyrics, but that actually doesn't fucking matter right now. Like when you take away the meaning of people's lives, when you take away the meaning of the emotional and psychological meaning of people's lives, it becomes a lot easier. This is one of the reasons why fake news has become such a um, a massive talking point, an insufferable talking point that refuses to leave our mainstream discourse. When you do away people's psychological and emotional meaning in their lives, it's easier for them for actual meaning, objective meaning to be held on to also. And these are, the, uh, so when you have, you know, right-wing Trump supporters saying, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, it doesn't matter that the lyrics were written, but like they are a mobilized 
section of society. Mm -hmm. This is why it's so scary that there's tens of millions of people. When you are a mobilized section of society, you aren't accepting meaning anymore. You're creating it, you know? And so yep. they're the ones, they, they, they get to, re they don't get to redefine it, but it's like, what are we going to do to take it away from them? That really mm -hmm. is the question. And liberals have no actual, um, no actual strategy for taking, taking that narrative back because fundamentally they're, they're wed to key elements of its logic. So again, yeah, what does radical art do if, uh, you know, I mean, let's face it, Rage Against the Machine hasn't been cool for 20 years. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that part, part, like you brought up the question of fake news, right? So we're in this weird of position we're, of quote unquote fake news. Fake news, yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're in this weird position where on, we have this mass mobilization or increasingly mobilized far right that is talking about fake news. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, what they mean by that is totally unhinged and so on. Yeah. But the fact is the bourgeois mainstream news media is propaganda for the capitalist class, for absolutely. the radical center. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. that's part of how this contradiction works and why the liberal cultural resistance of parks and recreation and singing Imagine in the bathtub or whatever the fuck doesn't actually counter this faux insurgency of the fascists and the far right mm -hmm. and why we have to write the left has to create a cultural counterpoint against both the liberals and the fascists. Uh, Amanda Armstrong Price in Spectre had an interesting point in their description of the polysemic quality of Trump caravans. At once it looks like a parade, a get out the vote drive, an old fashioned barnstorming, Lincoln on the train to Springfield type event. At the same time, it looks like a rehearsal for paramilitary violence and it's for the Im intimidation of their opposition. The mm -hmm. way they put it was the truck caravans, this is quoting them, and the nightmare post-election scenario both offered ways imaginatively bridging the spheres of formal politics with sites of embodied confrontation and violence, the street above all. Coming up with a counter for that on our side, the liberals will obviously shrink at that, do everything they can to prevent it, in fact. Yeah. So yeah. we need to create our own side's cultural bridge from formal politics to the sites of embodied confrontation because there's only going to be more embodied confrontation. What exactly that looks like, I mean, part of its memes, part of its visual art, part of its literature and so on. Of course, and we've talked about a realism as it relates to that, imagining a different world, but it's also an a realism within our demands and our organizing and overcoming, I think, what's still a pretty a big hangover from capitalist realism in our organizing now with mm -hmm. the added question of fear uh, fear of the fascists, fear of the police, fear, you know. I think that's true. To me, the question, th this has always been the question for me. Like, how do we create the spaces, we as the left, how do we create the spaces where we can create, can keep building our narratives, not as separate from society, but like in, in, in mm -hmm. a very urgent and interconnected <laughs> way. I mean, we need those. Like, I, I guess one of the reasons I harp on cultural space so much is that it's not just like a, a simple question of resources, like physical space. Do you need an actual studio to paint in? Yes, or at least a roof over your head or you know, a, a desk to sit at while you write. You need actual physical space for that. Um, but also you need sort of the, the, the thing that's more difficult to put your finger on is the, the mental space, the, mm -hmm. the feeling yeah. that when you create a word 
or um, an image or gesture that it's going to be understood and um, interpreted by someone who shares a common framework with you. Like that mental space, that ability to create meaning that will be acknowledged and recognized by a large sector of society um, and validated uh, is incredibly important. I mean, like, th th again, with base mm -hmm. and superstructure, I guess you could say it's a bit flawed, but it's like you need that actual physical material space in order to, um, which isn't just the space itself, but the ability to defend that space, to justify it, which again gets back into sort of the mental space of it. Uh, you, mm -hmm. you need these things in order to actually change the world. Uh, it's what when the left, when sectors of the left write off the, uh, the urgency of art or the necessity of art, I get incredibly frustrated because like, uh, honestly, the, the, you know, the Trump supporters on some level get aesthetics better than we do, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. or, or they're able to mobilize them more effectively than we are. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. We could go into with like you know the mechanical reproduction of, of the artistic image and Walter Benjamin when you're able to mechanically reproduce the same thing over and over again it makes like emotive propaganda a lot easier but um, that doesn't let us off the hook we need to figure out a way to um, politicize aesthetics to counter the way that the right has aestheticized politics mm -hmm. We just have to, like, it's a, it's a very big challenge. It's huge. We may not fucking get there, but we have to start reckoning with it. We have to start asking these questions. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always, it's always struck me. It's interesting that you mentioned that they're like better with aesthetics. It's, it's like, it's something that's always kind of boggled me, like specifically, like what, how, what is it? Why are they so good at, at memes and, and propaganda and images and, and stuff that like pulls people in? <laughs> and why 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 aren't we yeah. i'm not sure they are better i think uh part of the easy have is the, like the normal workings of society are already sexist racist you know normative imperialist mm. and because their work is the what they produce is also those things it already partly jives with the status quo um and reinforces sense. a particular aspect of it yeah. Um, for example, I, I remember writing about far right memes. They thrive off of decontextualization, um, yeah. which is what the internet does: is it decontextualizes the things that go into it, and then puts them in this new framework designed to maximize information um, and capital accumulation. Whereas a left meme has to try to bring up contextualization again. Yeah. It works against yeah. the logic of the internet as a whole. Um, what they've done with the caravans has created a sort of a carnival-like feel to them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is a sort of fake aesthetic leveling, right? A fake insurgent aspect to it. Yeah. Um, and that we want to create that. One of the difficulties we've had in creating embodied spaces, culturally and politically, is that the left takes the pandemic seriously and the right has weaponized it. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, like I, one of the things that was interesting because, uh, you know, we were at historical materialism, which has been going on virtually not in person this year. Um, Richard Seymour talking about the pandemic. Um, obviously, Trump lost some elderly voters, particularly in Arizona because of the pandemic. But the fights around the pandemic probably emboldened a whole bunch of his supporters. 
And one of the yeah. things more noted, yeah. Trump's vote went up in several counties that had the highest death rates from COVID-19. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. They, as, since they embodied, right, the, the plague itself as part of their politics, they were able to manipulate that in a way we couldn't. Now, I also want us not to think, because remember, the mass protests, 24 million people after the police murdered George Floyd, knocked yeah. those fuckers back in a huge yeah. way. Yeah, th there was a big part of, uh, we've talked about this before, I think, maybe not on this show, but I think in some of our, our work elsewhere, th there was a huge carnivalesque element of mm -hmm. those protests too that transformed urban space which was especially stark given that so many um you know the streets had been deserted uh for the past couple a couple months really or it certainly were a lot more sparse because of lockdown because the only people who were out tended to be like people who are essential workers um so to see relatively sparsely populated streets all of a sudden be flooded by folks chanting you know calling out the names of the dead playing music uh you know like all of the all of those stories that boarded themselves up with plywood as the protests uh began to gain steam all of a sudden were turned into murals murals for george floyd for brianna taylor murals with uh, angela davis's face on them you know, it, it was the physical transformation of space and a reclamation of space that honestly, I think, for the most part, kind of leaves some of those caravans, the Trump caravans, in the dust. So I, I do think it's worth being remembering that, remembering of actually how, I don't want to say easy it can be to to transform space, but how quickly it can it can shift. You know, all the graffiti art that went things like that. The the amount of bravery it takes, even when you're with tens of thousands of other people, um, especially when it's predominantly people of color, the amount of um, gutsiness it takes to, you know, go up and start tagging walls openly in broad daylight with a cab. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's transformative. So, yeah, I think we should actually be very aware of the way that that can absolutely flatten a Trump caravan. And I think it's important to ask why, what broke through the limits of fear and capitalist realism at that moment. Mm -hmm. And it was the intolerability of continuing with things as quote unquote normal um, after uh, those series of police, racist police murders. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we need to do is use our, the left needs to use our traditions to jump forward in time to see how the arc of intolerability that's developing, um, which will, should help us overcome the capitalist realism and fear that is still infecting our organizations mm -hmm. um, and allow us to do what we need to do. And this is true for revolutionary socialists, communists, trots, Maoists, anarchists, social Democrats, left anarchists, social Democrats, and so on, where I feel like, um, you know, for a whole number of reasons, historic and contemporary, capitalist realism, the fear of the fascists and so on, I think <laughs> we're hesitant to take the necessary actions that we need to take to the next step to organize the class, fight with the fascists. And I'm not talking about adventurism, right. but door knocking in our neighborhoods to organize community defense, not being afraid to call out a local politician who's repeating fascist talking points, mm -hmm. not being afraid to march in the street, not being afraid that if we do anything, we're just going to draw the attention of the fash. 
because they're going to come and I say we shouldn't be strategic, but they're coming one way or another. Mm-hmm. And we obviously, mm-hmm. and obviously strategy is important, but we have to fight back. And we can't afford, of course, like endless discussions that end up in us not really doing anything. So like we talked about culturally, the need to jump the shark, right? Have an overdetermined socialism in our art and our literature and our performances and so on that we can't be coy right, with our socialism in our culture, right? Cultural work. But I think that's true in our practical political work too. Um, that we have this fear and this hangover, but the trajectory of things, if we don't militantly organize our side, um, it's going to provoke that fight eventually anyway. So we need to get organized. We need to like get ahead of it as much as we can. Right. Yeah. The only question is how ready we are. I mean, like, I think that's one of the things that's being shown by, you know, a good example of it actually is some of the work that our, our comrade and fellow locust editor uh, Anupam is doing in India right now around the upcoming general strike. Yeah, there's a whole group of artists making art uh, to help with uh, a bunch of a series of trade unions that are organizing for a strike on November 26th. And there's all sorts of open questions there. Um, lots of people are involved, obviously various communists, but, uh, and obviously they have a government that's sort of, it's in many ways even worse um, <laughs> um, than ours. Um, so uh, there's lots of open questions, but it's necessary to make the class struggle two-sided um, if we're gonna, if we have any hope of winning. Some of that art is really, really, really good too. I mean, mm-hmm. We've always loved Anupam's work here, but uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a lot of the comrades who've uh, submitted, that have had work in Locust Review are making art and other people, lots of people are making stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah. cool. All right, well, uh, it's almost time for us to move on. Uh, Does anyone have any final thoughts? I think I've spoken enough. Adam, Tish, what what do you all think? My only final thought is that that jump the shark over determines we need to you know, blah, blah, blah. Jump the shark with like, I don't know, like a hammer and a sickle, an mm-hmm. AK-47, a red banner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, fuck There's... it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much all I have. Actually, I mean... <laughs> actually, when Adam was saying the jump the shark with the hammer and sickle and AK, it immediately, what immediately came to, to mind was the, um, What's the, there's that picture of John Brown where he's got a rifle in one hand and his other one is just like, you know, he's got both of his arms akimbo and he just has, you know, he already looks crazy because he's got that big old beard, uh, but he's got just the most unhinged look in his eye. And actually, I don't know if either of you have had a chance to watch The Good Lord Bird yet, but it is, no. I've only watched no. the first episode. It, yeah, it, it's it's pretty interesting. I think that it, it takes a very sort of um, aggressively absurd, not, I don't want to say a realist or surreal, though maybe shades of it, um, but a very sort of aggressively absurdist um, uh, um, tack to look at the story of John Brown. Uh, because, you know, Brown was like just an unhinged dude, you know, but he, He's also incredibly sympathetic in the way that Ethan Hawke is playing him. So I think that there's this sense of like, in order to actually change shit, you do have to kind of be a bit unhinged. You have to to jump the shark and be unafraid if people are gonna say you're you're 
a bit of a loon. It's not to say again, you don't want to be adventurous and you don't want to be so, so off the rails that people just start ignoring you and, you know, write you off as a kook, but you know, we need to sort of instill something in people, uh, a sense of, I don't know, maniacal urgency, I guess. Yeah, I agree. So Jake, you always need that one like uh, unhinged anarchist or Maoist at the protest who will always try to kick the door open no matter what, because sometimes you actually can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. So let's do some poetry, huh? Let's uh, let's let's do some poetry. I know we have some some poetry coming from. Mike Lineweaver, our, our comrade and co-editor vis-a-vis uh, Leslie. Uh, but uh, do we want to start out with uh, Tish's poems? Tish, what are, what are you reading? Is it poetry uh, or so is, it, is it story? It is poetry. I have a poem called uh, Coyote Invasion and then one called Bagworm that I would like to read. They're fairly short, so. Cool. Uh, uh, so this one is Coyote Invasion. Crawling and loping from the mountains to stalk the tops of plaster walls, taking chickens and pets into the night, howling secrets through windows at children. Parents clamor, teeth gnash, beg, won't someone please protect our babies? Trampling old coyote bones, shuffling their feet, crying, they give our babies nightmares. So that's coyote invasion. Uh, oh my God, that broke my is, heart. The fucking poor coyote. Jesus. Right? <laughs> uh, that was a, that, wasn't that poem inspired by true events? It was. It was inspired by um, when we were living in Vegas, there's this sort of like bougie area called Summerlin. And uh, it, it it's like up on the hillside. It's really nice. It's where the coyotes would live where they're not nice houses there now. If they had not uh, and, been displaced by lawyers and gynecologists. Yeah. And and when we were living there, we started I started seeing videos in a lot of the like notification groups for local areas, like be on the lookout, coyotes are like walking because every every block in uh in Clark County, I have to assume, is like surrounded by these giant walls because everyone wants, you know, like their own plot of land, don't come onto my land. And they were like trailing along the tops of the walls and like terrifying people's children like people were like we can't even let our kids outside the house because there's coyotes out trying to eat them god i remember there was a uh god this is like 15 years ago so i'm dating myself here but uh stan goff who uh, he talks about like all of these communities that are built out in sort of the middle of the california nevada desert lo and behold some jogger one morning gets eaten by a mountain lion and then the whole media starts talking about you have a mountain lion. Uh, uh, there's a mountain lion problem. Like, well, no, the, the mountain lions were there first. The mountain lions mm-hmm. have a people problem. Uh, and it's kind of the same thing. The co- we don't have a coyote problem here in L.A. The coyotes have, well, an L.A. problem. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so next up, we have Leslie Lea reading uh, poetry by Mike Lineweaver, who's part of the editorial collective for Locust Review. Leslie themselves has published work. Um, in previous editions of Locust Review and in uh, the upcoming Locust Review number four. After this poem, we'll go to the break. And for those of you who are subscribers, you'll be able to listen to the second half of our show. We'll have more poetry and we'll have discussions of things we're working on right now, as well as a discussion about the Michaelists, 
um, who are a group of communist science fiction fans who tried to take over science fiction for communism in the 1930s, and a discussion of the Chuck Tingle universe um, <laughs> and the realist uh, erotic uh, romance novels of Chuck Tingle. Love at the End by Michael Lineweaver. They went out, stabbing into the day or what was left of all days. And she whispered, I love you, even as they died. He stared for a moment at the ring of the sun, pinching his retinas between dry leaves. There was once a factory there near the interstate, gone now, smoke up its own choked and rotten chimney. They held hands then and they cried together for the dead things between them and their scaly dreams hung from their eyelids like suicides. I'll not leave you, he said. Where will we live, she asked. We live now, he said. I've built a home on the rim of your neck. What will we eat, she asked. We will eat our feet and our hands and our hearts and our hopes. We will eat at our bones after the world has taken the marrow. Where will we go? We will go as we have come, naked and wasted, to the dirt and the guts of spiders. When there was nothing left to say or ask, the sun set behind them, and the glassy eyes of werewolves appeared in the dark. One, two, one, two, three, four. Thank you for listening to Locust Radio. Locust Radio is produced by Drew Franzblau with music by Omni Soul. You can find Omni Soul on Bandcamp, and there's a link in our show notes. Your hosts were Adam Turrell, Alexander Billet, and Tish Markley. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time. Mm-hmm.